last week, I showed you the first part of that video introducing you to Dr. Evan Attar, uh, who won this prestigious Refugee Award uh, in 2018. And uh, if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that he's the only surgeon that serves in e a region, an area that has over 200,000 people. Over 150,000 of them are refugees. They have fled their home in Sudan because of ongoing conflict and war. And uh, now they're, they're just kind of living uh, in this temporary housing. And, and, and so they simply left because it was unsafe to live where they wanted to live or needed to live, and so they just packed up their stuff and moved. And so they didn't really feel like they had a choice if they wanted to protect their family. Now, Dr. Attar, because he is a doctor, uh, had other resources and other options available to him. He honestly could have said, that's fine, you guys go wherever you need to go. I'll just go back home and I'll be with my family. Because he's a doctor and because he works for Samaritan's Purse, he could have been asked, uh, or he could have asked to, to be evacuated and maybe placed somewhere else that was a little safer, a little uh, easier, a little better location, but he didn't. You see, instead, he decides to load up all the medical equipment he have and, and move with his patients. And when he moved, he didn't know exactly where he was going. If you uh, can imagine having to leave a country that's war-torn, you don't know exactly where you're going to go or how far you're going to have to go to be safe. And he didn't know where his patients were going. And he just knew he was going because this was the work that God had called him to do, that God had gifted him and given him skills and ability to help people and that God expected Dr. Tar just to trust him and use those gifts. And so for years, uh, Dr. Tar, I saw his story and I just was fascinated by it because for me, uh, Dr. Tar is a, a modern day picture of the man we're going to read about in Scripture today in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, of, of Abraham and the story of Abraham and how God just, um, how um, th they were just ordinary common men, but they did these extraordinary things for God. And so Dr. Tar has been serving these people, living in a tent. He learned to sleep setting up, which is a talent that I think some folks may actually have, and I, I, that's an awesome talent. Uh, he spent months away from his family, and he, he sees them often on the phone. And uh, Another part of the story uh, that I saw is that he actually enjoys now that he gets to see his kids on the phone, and he gets to help them with homework versus just writing letters back and forth to them, which is what he used to do. Uh, before they had cell phones and stuff like that. So uh, Dr. Attar is this ordinary man, but he lives this extraordinary life. And he sums up his faith and his motivation in this interview when he said this. He says, we are the only ones here to help these people. In fact, we're the only witness for Christ among these people. Jesus has given his love to us without asking anything in return. Here, we do just a little to help, but God is with us. We cannot do anything by ourselves. You see, Dr. Tar realizes, he acknowledges that I can't do this by myself. I am an ordinary, regular person, but I have an extraordinary faith in a God who can. And so he recognizes this, this ordinary ability that he has, but this extraordinary faith that he has. And we know it because he constantly lives it out by what he does each and every week. And he constantly lives it out because what he's doing for these people. And so uh, this week we're going to be in Hebrews 11 again. We're going to start in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8, uh, read through verse 10, and then we're going to skip down to verse 20. And last week we talked about these, some of these heroes of the faith. And we talked about kind of how their, their stories shaped, their, were shaped and, and how our faith should shape certain things. But this week we're kind of more focused on um, our call to action. You see, it's one thing to say that we have faith. It's one thing to say that we believe and we trust in God. But it's a totally different story when you actually have to put that into practice. And so we're going to look at these stories today, a few of these men who put their faith into action. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 
chapter 11. We'll start in verse 8, read through verse 10, and then skip down to verse 17. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me, um, or the words will be on the screens here beside me. But Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8, says, For by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place that he was going to receive, or excuse me, to a place he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in a land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then just uh, because we're going to come back and talk about Sarah next week on Mother's Day, we're going to skip down uh, to verse 17 and continue the story of Abraham. And so verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promise, and he was offering his unique son, the one it was, had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, and as an illustration, he received him back. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph... As he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the words that we sang just a moment ago, God, that we trust in you. And so, God, I pray this morning that we didn't just sing those songs because they were lyrics to a, a song that we know. I pray that we didn't just sing those words because they popped up on a screen. God, I'm praying this morning that we honestly sing those songs because that is what is in our heart, that, God, we really do trust you. And, God, I'm praying this morning that we don't trust you with just our lips and we don't just trust you when we're sitting here in our comfort zone and we don't just trust you when it's easy for us. But, God, that we will trust you even when it's hard. God, we will trust you even when we don't know the way and even when we don't know where we're going, even when we don't know how it's going to work out. And God, even when we don't know when all of it's going to come together, God, we will still say that we trust in you. God, I pray this morning that you speak to us of these examples of faith, that you speak to us, God, through these men who, who are ordinary men but have this extraordinary faith. God, and I pray that you speak to us not because these are stories of the past, but because these are things that, you, that we can live out, Father. And so, God, I pray that we will have the faith that these men exhibited. God, I pray that we will have faith that's not just lips and word service, but, God, rather it is action and it is steps that we take to where it is you are leading us to, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that our heart and our lives are wide open to you in this moment so that we are ready to hear, ready to receive. And, God, that in a few moments we will be ready to step out and do what you called us to do, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you know that when I was growing up, I had a dad that owned a construction company. And so um, it wasn't unusual for him to send myself or, or me and my brother off to places that we had never been before. There were, there were some neighborhoods that like we did every single house in that neighborhood. And so he would just tell us some days like, hey, just go to this neighborhood and, and look for the house that's not finished yet. And that's the one you're working on. And so those were easy to find. But there were other times that he would tell us, hey, there's this house that, that I need you to go to. And, 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 
let me tell you how to get there. And so when my dad gave directions, they were very unusual. Okay, so some of you are too young to know this, but there was a time before GPSs. Okay, there was a time before phones, and there was a time before your car talked to you and told you to turn right in 500 feet. All right. So before all of that, we had the dark ages, and, and we had to rely on these little things called maps. All right. And my dad was a map drawer. All right. But his maps were not like anybody else's maps. Okay. So let me try to explain to you. I think so. <laughs> Maybe we're going we're gonna to give this a shot, right? So me and my brother or myself or whoever we were with, we'd take that post note and we would start going to so-and-so's house, except we wouldn't take a ride. We'd go until we saw this. And, and there were times that, um, that we, we just had to kind of figure all this stuff out because all we had was this post note. And I'm going to be honest with you, as crazy as those directions sounded, 95% of the time, Dad was spot on. I mean, 95% of the time, if you did exactly what he told you to do, you were going to get to exactly the house you were looking for. The other 5% of the time was when somebody moved one of the John Deere tractors or all the dogs were in the backyard instead of the front yard when you drove by, and so you just didn't see them. But uh, I want you to imagine that, that uh, we had this post to note with these four little lines, and there were no road names. And by the way, there was no scale that this thing was drawn on whatsoever. So, so this much could be five miles or it could be 10 miles. You had no idea. You were just trusting that at some point you were going to see the greenhouse with no shutters after you saw the, the brick house with shutters. And so there were times that we would, uh, we'd have to, we'd get lost and we'd get confused and we'd have to, this is also back before we all carried cell phones with them. So we'd have to go to a gas station. We'd have to call and be like, Dad, we got on the road. We saw the house with the, or we saw the barn with the two John Deere's. We turned right and then we saw the, the, the brick house with black shutters, but we never saw a greenhouse. And then he'd be like, did you see the pink house? I'm like, well, no, we didn't see a pink house. You didn't tell us about a pink house. He'd go, well, you didn't go far enough because the pink house is before the greenhouse, right? This is how my dad gave instructions. And so what we over time began to learn was that dad was right. Why was he right? Because he had been there before, and what we need to do was just be obedient to the directions that he gave us. Even when we had no clue how to get where we were going, even when we had no clue where we were going, he had been there. And so all we had to do was be obedient to what he told us and what he gave us, even on this little piece of paper that didn't map out everything for us. It gave us enough to get us where we needed to go, and we just need to be obedient to do that. And when we didn't find it, it was because we weren't obedient. We didn't go far enough. We didn't trust deep enough. We didn't do what we were told to do on that little piece of paper with all of those different directions and all those little different lines. And so uh, the, this story I'm telling you is because this is the same thing the writer of Hebrews is teaching us when he talks about the story of Abraham, that faith requires us to be obedient even when we don't know where we're going. You see, Abraham... It's the first of several generations we're going to talk about today. But he's the first one we're going to talk about in this line of people who are ordinary people who do extraordinary things for God. Not because they're extraordinary people, because they have an extraordinary faith in this God. Like I said, last week we looked at some examples of people and how their faith shaped things, like their worldview and their worship and their work. And, and this week we're going to look at these same ideas of faith, but we're really going to see it from this idea of there is action to our faith. You see, it's one thing to say that we trust God. It's one thing to say that we believe in God. But it's a whole different ball game when all of a sudden God calls you to do something and you really have to trust Him. You see, I can tell you all day long, I trust that that stool right there is going to be good and it's going to hold me up. And then you look at me like, all right, good. You got trust in it, go sit on it. I'm like, oh, no, I don't know about sitting on it. Let me just look at it for a while. 
Can we really claim to trust something if we never put it into practice? Can we really train, claim to trust something if we're never willing to put our weight and our, our beliefs and our life all on the line? You see, this is the story of Abraham, that there's action to our faith. And so Abraham demonstrates this by being obedient even when he didn't know where he was going. And so some of you are very familiar with the story of Abraham. Some of you are going to be very familiar with all of these stories that we're going to work through today. But, but Abraham's story... As some of you know, he is the father of the Israelite nation. He's the father of the nation of Israel. But his story doesn't start in Israel. It doesn't start where the, he is currently supposed to be. And so all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to this guy named Abraham. And the first verse of Genesis chapter 12 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Right? And this last phrase, this, this phrase of this land I will show you, is really what the writer of Hebrews highlights in verse 8. Right? Uh, but he, he's got to leave his land, he's got to leave his family, he's got to leave everything that's familiar with him, and he starts this journey to this place he doesn't even know. God doesn't tell him to go to this city, God doesn't tell him to go to this town, God doesn't tell him to go to this seaport, he just says, you just start. And I'll show you where to go from there. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. And he went out to a place, and he was going to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. You see, God called Abraham to leave everything behind, everything that was familiar to him, his family, his land, all this stuff. And he says, I just want you to go. And I'm not going to tell you exactly where to go. I just want you to go. And so God didn't hand him a post-it note with lines drawn on it. God didn't give him GPS directions of how to get where he was supposed to go. God didn't even give him, the, this is the location I want you to get there. And so understand that when Abraham steps out in faith, he has no idea where he is going. All he knows is that God told me to go and I'm going to go. So understand that, that Abraham is going to step out to this place that he has no idea where it goes, which means he doesn't know exactly how to get there, which also means he doesn't know what he's going to find when he gets there. He, he doesn't know if he's going to find a water source. He doesn't know if he's going to find a place for his, his crops, or he doesn't know if he's going to find a place for his animals. Let's be honest with you. He doesn't even know what the weather is going to be like. Now, some of you are like me, that you're, not getting, you're, you're thinking about vacation, and you wouldn't dare pack up for vacation without checking the 10-day forecast of the place you're getting ready to go. But listen, he doesn't know where he's going, so he can't look up the 10-day forecast or the 14-day forecast. He doesn't even know the destination. All he knows is God says it's time to move. It's time for you to pick up, pack up, move your stuff, and I'll show you where to go. All he knows is he's leaving this one place, and God's going to show him this place that he wants him to go. And what's his response? By faith, yes, sir. He picks up all the stuff, he packs it all up, and he heads to wherever God is pointing. He just went. And then, so he starts this journey one foot right in front of another. And, and he, he steps out in this obedience of faith that he doesn't know where. He doesn't know, know how to get there. All he knows is who. You see, this is a different thing. He doesn't know where. He doesn't know how to get there. All he knows is who, and that's all that matters to him. He knows who has called him. He knows who is leading him. And he knows who is going to be with him. You see, the assurance of our faith and confidence that we can have, this confidence that we can have, and this obedience that we have, it doesn't rest on us or what we know. It rests on who we know. You see, our assurance is based on the fact that wherever God has called us, He's already there. That wherever God has called us, did you notice what is said in the text? 
I want you to go to this place that I will show you. Guess what? God could show him from a distance. Most likely, if God's going to show him, it means God's going to be with him the whole way. So Abraham stepping out in faith and stepping out in obedience doesn't rest on Abraham's ability to know what's going on or see the future. It simply rests on the fact that God is already where I'm going to be, and he's going to be with me every step of the way. And he's going to show me where the next step is. And so I don't need this GPS direction. I don't need to know every turn. I don't even need the post note with the four lines. All I need to know is that when I put one foot in front of the other, God is there with me. And He's going to be with me the whole time. And so I want you to listen to me. We can do extraordinary things for God if we will just trust Him enough to put one foot in front of the other. You see, some of us are sitting on the sidelines of faith because we're waiting for GPS directions to load for our life. Some of us are waiting for the the GPS, the turn-by-turn directions of where we're going to be, not just five years, but ten years and fifteen years and the rest of your life. And some of us are refusing to move until we get the full directions. And not just the full directions, we want the weather report. We want the confirmation of the email of where we're going to end up, the destination. We want all of that. And God, we're not going to move until we get all of that. And yet what he's telling us through the story is do you really trust a God if you have to know everything about the journey before you take the first step? You see, when God says to move, our place is not to question the journey. It is simply to have enough faith and enough trust in Him that we're obedient, that we take one step at a time. We trust Him with this step. And when we've got this step, we're obedient to take the next step. And we're obedient to take the next step. Now, there's some of you that are sitting here this morning and you're going to write this story off. This is a very easy story to sit back and like, good job, Abraham. I'm so proud of you, man. You are awesome. That's not me. You're, you're going to read this story and be like, this isn't, this isn't my story. Because God hasn't called me to leave Cleveland. He hasn't called me to leave my family. He hasn't called me to leave my relatives. Yet God does that. He calls people. He calls missionaries and He calls pastors. And He calls these people to do these things and leave these areas. But that's not me. God's never called me to do that. And so we can, we can pass over this story. And so I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not telling you that God has called you to leave this area. But I can tell you that God has probably called you to leave your comfort zone. You see, for Abraham, it wasn't just a land. This was everything for him. This was a time when people didn't travel. They didn't pack up and they didn't leave home and go somewhere they didn't know. They, they didn't, most people never ventured past 10 miles from where they were born in this day. And yet Abraham does it. And so listen, for some of us, we are so set in our comfort zone because this is where our family's at and this is where our relatives are at. This is where our friends are at. And we know how to get to the stores from here. We know all this stuff. And let's be honest with you, God may not be calling you to a different location, but I bet you He's calling you out of your comfort zone. I bet just like Abraham, He's calling you to move out of this little space that you've kind of carved in. You're like, God, I'm all right right here. God, I'll do whatever you want me to as long as it's in this little bubble. My guess is that he may not be calling you out of a place, but maybe he's calling you out of your comfort zone. Maybe he's calling you to leave the fear of the unknown behind, just like Abraham. And so for some of you, he's calling you to take a step. Not a 10,000 mile journey, just a step. Do you honestly trust him enough? Do you have enough obedience to take that step? And for some of you, maybe it's a step towards baptism. For some of you, maybe it's a step to a new ministry here at Cornerstone. For some of you, maybe it's a step towards a new small group. Or, or maybe for some of you, it's a step to one of the existing ministry teams that we have right here. Maybe for some of you, it's a step across the street or to a coworker or neighbor that needs to hear the gospel and the good news that you and I have. But the question is, not are they calling you because he, we know know he's calling us we know that he's got a purpose and a plan for us we has a location for us the question really of abraham is do we trust him enough 
to take that step? Do we believe that He is where He's called us to be and He's going to be with us every single step of the way? The reality is that God is pointing us somewhere. Do we, are we obedient enough to expect that we will follow up with, it, with where He calls us to go? You see, the question is, will you be obedient to Him even when you don't know exactly where He's going or where He's leading? You just know this is the next step. You see, some of us, we, we want to know all of the journey and all He's going to show you is the next step. And are we obedient enough? Do we have enough faith to be obedient enough to take that next step? You see, to answer that question, we really have to be willing to do the second thing that faith requires. You see, not only does it require us to be obedient when we don't know where we're going, but it really causes us and requires us to trust when we don't know how it's all going to work out. You see, the story... As many you know, Abraham doesn't end with him moving from one place to another and, and suddenly everything's perfect, everything's beautiful. No, in fact, he moves from one place to another and that place is already taken up by other people. And so there's this long waiting period. He lives in tents. We'll talk about that in just, when we get down to chapter 9. He lives in tents for a long time and he's waiting for something other. He's waiting for this city that has a foundation that's built by God. Not here on earth. He's actually foreseeing heaven and he's waiting for that. But in the meantime, there's this promise to Abraham. This promise that he's going to be the father of a great nation. And he's going to, this, this nation that he's going to be the father of is going to be a great nation. He's going to have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And this nation is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And, and, and that sounds beautiful, man. That's an amazing promise. Except there's one problem with that promise. Is that at this point in his life, Abraham doesn't even have one descendant. Much less a multitude of them. He doesn't even have one. And so finally, we'll get to this story when we talk about Sarah next week. He, he is able finally... Him and his wife Sarah are able to have this one child. And so everything rests on this one child named Isaac. And this one child, all the promises, this promise of a great nation, this promise of many descendants, the promise of blessing the whole world, it all comes down on the shoulders of this one child named Isaac. And so in verse 18, he makes that clear. In verse 18, he says, The one who has been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. And so all of the promises rest on this one son. And then the story takes an amazing turn. You see, back in Genesis in chapter 22, and if you remember Hebrews, what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the beginning. He's walking through uh, these stories of the Old Testament. And the reason he's walking these people through the stories of the Old Testament is because these are stories they're familiar with. But what he's wanting to show them is this is what it looks like. This is the faith that's required. Don't fall back into to the, the faith you were. Don't fall back in the life you were. Because you've got the same faith. The same God that was working in these men can be working in your life as well. And so then he tells them this story that, that we read about in Genesis 22. You see this one son that Abraham had that, that Abraham is sitting around and, and God says, Hey, listen, Abraham, I need you to do something. I need you to take your son. Your only son. In fact, it says the one that you love. I need you to take him to a mountain. I'm going to show you a mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him on that mountain. I literally want you to kill your son and burn his body as an offering back to me. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds terrible. Right? Even as a parent, and I can't imagine that, I can't think about that, and it's just so awful to even kind of picture that. And so Abraham, I imagine, he doesn't get any sleep that night. He's kind of trying to figure this out. And this just sounds terrible. It sounds crazy. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And how in the world are we going to have this whole promise thing? How are we going to have this whole great nation if I've got one son and now you're telling me to go kill him? So then in verse 17, this is the testing that it's talking about in verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and received the promises 
of this offering his unique son. So Abraham received the promise of the son, this waiting. He'd been patient. He'd been waiting uh, decades for this only son. And finally he gets it. And God says, all right, give it back to me. And Abraham's like, wait. This, this doesn't look good. You know, how is this going to work? There's, there's this promise of this great nation. There's this promise of all these descendants. And I've got one. And now I've got to give him back to you. God, this, this doesn't make sense to me. I, I, don't, I can't wrap my mind around this. I just don't see how all of this is, is going to work. All of this promise, is it really true? This doesn't look good for, for all the rest of the promise. But I want you to see what Abraham does. He's faithfully trusting God that even when the plan doesn't make sense, God's going to work it out. You see, here we are, we're going to be this great nation, we got this one kid to do it, and it doesn't make sense to kill this one kid if it's our only chance, and it doesn't make sense that, that we're going to have this blessing of the whole world if it's one kid is our only chance. But it takes trust to trust in a God who can do things that we don't normally think. And so Abraham receives this promise, but by faith, Abraham does what God calls him to do. He takes him up to the mountain or he actually takes a group of men and they start going towards this mountain. And finally God shows him, this is the mountain I want you to do. And here's the amazing part of the story. He looks at the men who are traveling with him and his son Isaac, who's probably 10, 11, maybe 12 at the time. And he's, he's walking with these men. He says, all right, you guys stay here. We, plural, are going to go up to that mountain. And we're going to worship. And then we, plural, are going to come back. Knowing full well what God has called him to do, knowing full well that sacrifices don't come back, that they don't bring shit back, but we are going and we are coming back. You see, he had faith that God is going to do something different on this mountain than anything that I expect in the past, anything I've heard of God doing in the past, that God is going to do something different. So because faith is not built on us or our circumstances, it's built on this God. And I love verse 19 because even though Abraham says, this doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust God, in verse 19, he says, he considered God. And I want to pause right there because this is a beautiful moment, a beautiful thing. This word consider means to think about. It means to, uh, I love I looked this word up in the Greek and it literally said to reckon, right? That's a Stokes County phrase right there, to reckon, right? It's an accounting term. It means that you look at the numbers and you basically go over the numbers and so that they match up with each other, right? We would say that you roll these numbers around in your head over and over and over again. And so he considers God. He, he thinks about God. He deeply contemplates plates and reasons. And I point that out because I want you to understand that, that Abraham doesn't do this on emotion. He doesn't do this on this blind leap of faith. That He fully thinks this through and he fully thinks of all the consequences and he calculates this whole thing. And it, this is a thought process that he goes through. And then back to verse 19. He considered God, get this, to be able even to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him Back. So Abraham thought this through and he reaches this conclusion of, I don't know how this is going to work. I, I, I don't see how any of this is going to happen. Here's what I know I know God gave us life. And if God gave us life, then He can do it again. I know that God created life and He breathed life into Adam the first time and He gave every one of us life and God gave each one of us life. What could stop God from doing it a second time? Why wouldn't we trust that God could raise someone from the dead? And I want you to understand that when Abraham is thinking through all this, there are zero examples of this happening in Scripture. No one has been raised from the dead in the past, in all that Abraham knows, in all the Scripture, until the story of, uh, that we're getting in. No one has been raised from the dead. 
The people have died and we buried them and they continue being dead. No one's been raised from the dead. And so all of a sudden Abraham's like, listen, I don't see how this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't see all the details. All I know that if God called me to do this, I'm going to do it and I'm going to trust him. That even if I do have to go through this, even if he doesn't provide another way, that God's big enough and he's strong enough and he's powerful enough that he can bring someone back to life. If the God made us and he created us, then he can handle this. And so even what we consider the worst thing possible and something that's permanent and unrepairable is no match for the God that we serve. You see, Abraham just trusted that God, even though he had never seen God do it, he'd never heard of God doing it, that he could still do it. And so this whole promise, he trusts, hey, listen, even if I have to go through the worst, God will make it happen. God will bring my son back to life. And I want you to listen. I don't know where you're at right now, but I'm guessing that some of you are sitting in this room and you're kind of feeling this same way. And, and you just, you're in a situation right now. You just don't know how it's going to work out. You, you don't know all the details. You, you, you've got this whole puzzle just laid out in front of you, and you have no idea how this whole thing is supposed to fit back together to make a picture. And, and I'm not even talking about death. I'm not even talking about the worst of the worst, the end of the end. I'm, I'm talking about everyday things. Some of you, it's, it's you're paying your bills. For some of us, it's, it's raising our kids. For some of you, it's fixing a marriage or surviving as a family together. And I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually and, and surviving and, and emotionally surviving. And, and you're just in this situation. You don't know how it's going to work. And you've come to the end of the rope trying to figure out how all this is going to work. And like I said, you just don't see how the puzzle is supposed to come together. And you don't see all the pieces of this puzzle making a big picture. And what I want you to hear me this morning is it's okay. Abraham didn't see the puzzle either. You know what he saw? The one who held the puzzle. The one who created the puzzle. The one who knew how to fit them all together the first time. And if the puzzle got broke, he could put it all back together. And so listen to me. Our trust in God is not because our circumstances are getting better. Not because we understand it and we can put it all together. Our trust in God is simply this. That we know that he built it. He created it. And if it all fell apart, he could put it all back together in the first place. That we have a God that when we come to the worst of the worst, even death, the worst enemy, the thing that nobody has ever defeated, He could overcome it. We have this God who is so amazing. And I want to pause for just a moment because I don't want you to think and fall in this idea that, that I'm talking about this name it and claim it idea that we hear about faith all the time. That if you just believe hard enough, if you just name it, then claim it and you believe hard enough, then God will give you whatever you want. That's not at all what we're talking about in this scripture. That is not at all a biblical picture of faith. And the reason I know that is because I want you to notice the order of these stories. And the order of these stories is there was obedience first, and then there was trusting afterwards. There was obedience, and then there was blessings. There's this calling out to what God's called you to do, and there's obedience to that, and there's trusting Him. And both of these are demonstrations of the faith. So I want you to understand, don't expect God to pay your bills if you're not obedient enough to go get a job. Don't expect God to pay your bills and raise your kids when you're spending your life not being in His will and not living out His will for your life. Let me get it a little harder for some of you or parents. Don't expect God to raise your kids in a Christian home if you're not living a Christian lifestyle. The church cannot do it for you. There's an amen from a child right there. Right? I'm not saying that your kid, you're not living a Christian lifestyle, but there we go. So listen to me, guys. Listen, you've got to be obedient and trust Him. 
And it's not this name and claim. And it's not, hey, I can live however I want to and, and, and then just trust God enough and He's going to show up in the bank account and He's going to show up and my kid's going to be the road scholar and the, the pastor and the missionary one day. It's none of that. Listen, be obedient to what He's called you to do. Live that Christian lifestyle. Get that job. Do your finances like He's told you to. Be obedient and trust Him in every situation. And when the obedience happens then know that there is nothing that is a match for God, that even death is not a match for our God. You see, he demonstrates this through something that we know full well that Abraham had never seen. And this is the illustration he talks about in verse 19. You see, just two weeks ago, we celebrated this wonderful holiday we call Easter. And what does it tell us about the story of Easter? It tells me there's no sin too big that God won't take care of. It tells me that God loved me enough that He sent His Son to die on a cross to wipe away every sin that I've ever committed, thought about committing, and will commit from here to the rest of my life. And not only that, but He sent His Son to die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and rise again three days later. And listen to me, if you think there's something that God can't do, you need to look at the cross and you look at an empty tomb and realize there is nothing that God cannot handle. And it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is, there is nothing that we cannot trust Him with. You see, when we see it that way, we see that God is this God that we trust in and we have this full assurance and faith in. Even when we don't know how it's going to work out, we don't have to. We just have to know the one who does. You see, so faith requires that we obey when we don't know where we're going. It requires that we trust even when we don't know how it works out. But there's one last thing that faith requires in these stories. And it's that we proclaim and we have patience even when we don't know when it's going to happen. You see, Abraham did exactly as he was told to do. He left his, his family, he left his relatives, and he moves to this new place. And, and, and he finds that this new place God has called him to, it's already filled up with other people. And so I want you to back up with me for just a moment to verse 9. And we realize that this, this promise was not just for Abraham. It's a multi-generational promise of things that are going to happen, not in Abraham's life, but throughout generations. So in verse 9, says, when they reached the promised land, and they didn't possess it. In verse 9, it says, by faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. See, this is the verse that drew me to Dr. Attar, living in a tent. Because this is what God called him to do. By faith, he was living in a foreign country, in a foreign land, because this is the work that God had called him to do. And so what is Dr. Attar doing? He's proclaiming the name of Christ in this group of people that God has called him to, even though he's living in a tent. We find the exact same thing happening throughout the generations of the early people of Israel that we, we go through in this land that they are living in. They don't possess it. And then we skip down to verse 20. And we find, and we pick up the story here in verse 20, and we see how each generation after Abraham does exactly what Abraham does and exactly what Dr. Attar is doing now. They're proclaiming the promise in the waiting. Verse 20 says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And so Abraham, uh, is, his son was Isaac. And so Abraham told Isaac. Isaac wasn't there when the promise was given. Isaac wasn't there when God said, Hey, pack up, leave home, and go over here. He wasn't there for any of that. The only way Isaac knows about any of that is that Abraham told him. And so Abraham tells him, he says, listen, we're living in these tents now, but one day we're going to own all this. It's just me and your mom and you, but one day we're going to be this great nation. And one day we're going to have, uh, there's going to be so many of us that we fill this land up. And we're going to be this wonderful blessing to all the world. And so, uh, Isaac, I just want you to hear this story. 
And then in verse 20, Isaac does the exact same thing. He blesses Jacob and Esau. These are his two children about things to come. And so I imagine, and this is just the Michael Riggs version, that, that Isaac gathers up his two sons. And even when they're tiny, little bitty kids, he says, listen, sons, i got to tell you the story. And he takes them outside of the tent that they're living. And he goes, you see, I want you to look as far out there as you can see. See way, way out there. See those mountains off in the distance? One day those are going to be ours. I know there's people there. I know there's people here between here and there. But one day, we're going to own all of this. Right? And it's almost like that Lion King episode or that, that scene in the Lion King where Mufasa takes Simba. And this is not my notes. It just came to mind. But Mufasa takes Simba up to the Pride Rock and he tells him, everywhere the light touches, this is going to be your kingdom. It's almost that picture because at that moment, it's not Simba's. But let me tell you the story because one day it's going to be. And so Isaac tells Jacob and Esau, one day this is going to be yours. And one day this great promise is going to happen. One day we're going to have this huge nation. And one day we're going to be a blessing to the whole world. And so, yeah, we're living in tents right now. We're living in this land that we don't possess. And yeah, we're foreigners here. But one day it's all going to be ours. And we're going to be the blessing the whole world is looking for. And then we continue on in verse 21. And they add another generation to the story. In verse 21, excuse me, it says, For by faith Jacob, when he was dying, Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Right? Jacob has a son. He actually has 12 sons, and one of them is named Joseph. And I want you to notice that, and we'll come back to why he's, he's not telling Joseph the story here in just a moment. But he, he goes on, he's telling the two sons of Joseph. I want you to get the, near his life, because he hasn't been in these boys' lives, and that's a whole different story we won't get into. But he's leaning on the top of his staff, and he's telling him, listen, son, one day there's this promise. And I want you to know that God has this blessing for the whole world. God has this story that He's been writing. And he's been involving our family in this. And, and we get to be part of this amazing story. And, and I, I know I'm an old man now, and, and this is all I've got. I've got to lean on this staff. To, and I don't look powerful. And I want you to understand that you're the fifth generation of this story. But this story is beautiful, and this story is amazing, and this story deserves to be told. And so he's reaching not just this generation, not just his son, but he goes on to his grandsons. And yes, there's this nation, and yeah, we're growing. Our descendants are starting to grow. But listen, kids, we aren't there yet. We're just part of the story and this continued going to grow. And we're in the fifth generation, but we're not there yet. You see, but in the time that we reach the fourth generation, the one before the two grandsons, this story takes a crazy turn. Many of you will be familiar with it, but the story of Joseph. Joseph is the fourth generation in this promise. He's the fourth generation in this story. But Joseph doesn't even spend most of his life in the land. You see, Abraham got to land and him and Isaac and Jacob, they lived almost their whole life in the land. Abraham lived all of it there, Isaac, or excuse me, most of it. Isaac lived his whole life there. Jacob lived most of his life there. But by the time Joseph shows up on the scene, he actually doesn't spend hardly any of his life there. In fact, most of his life, all except his early childhood, is spent down in Egypt. And he spends part of that time in jail, part of that time as a servant, and then part of that time as a second in command of the whole nation of Egypt, not in the promised land, not in the place where they were promised and all this inheritance. And so he spends all this time in a place that's not his, but I want you to see what he does in verse 22. This is beautiful. In verse 22, he, he, even though he's not there, he proclaims the promise and he demonstrates patience anyway. In verse 22, he says, By faith, Joseph, this is the fourth generation, by faith Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. And so as his life was coming to an end, he gives these very specific instructions to the people of Israel. He says, listen, there's going to be a time. Things aren't going to go great. Things are, things are going to get tough. 
But there's going to be a time that you leave here and you get to go back to the land that God promised our ancestors, back to the promise. There's always coming back to this promise that, that God has made to us. And you're going to be this great nation. You're going to keep growing. But listen, there's going to be a rough time. And in this rough time, don't give up and don't lose sight of this story. Don't lose this story. And this is how much I'm going to trust you not to lose this story. I'm about to die. And when I die, you take my bones back. I don't want to be buried here. I don't want, this is not my homeland. This is not where I grew up. I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried with my great-great-grandfather. I want to be buried with my great-grandfather. I want to be buried with my grandfather and my father. I want to go back there. Bury my bones there. Can I tell you a secret? 400 years later. 400 years later. It happened. The people of Israel are getting ready to leave after being slaves for 400 years. They finally get their chance to leave the nation of Egypt and they get their chance to go back home to their homeland that they never really possessed, to be honest with you, but the place that was promised them. They get to go see the promised land, to see the fulfillment of the promise. And you know what they packed up and took with them? A set of dry bones. It was over 400 years old. Why? Because Joseph told them about this. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I don't keep 400 year old bones in my house. The only reason you would keep 400 year old bones in your house is if you have a purpose for those bones that are 400 years old. And I'm going to tell you that people don't remember the purpose unless you tell them the purpose. So when I die, if there are bones in my house, you better believe I'm going to have told my kids there's a reason these bones are here. Do this with them. And so I tell you that story because what happened for those 400 years was that one generation proclaimed to the next generation, proclaimed to the next generation, proclaimed the next generation. There is a promise. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but we're going to patiently wait for it to happen. And we're just going to keep proclaiming this promise over and over and over until it happens. Never give up on the promise. Never give up on this opportunity that's coming. Never lose sight. This is the promise of God. Warren Wearsby once wrote about this. He says, true faith is able to wait for the fulfillment of God's purpose in God's timing. Not our timing. In God's timing. You see, there are many of us who are patiently, or maybe some of us are impatiently waiting for this return of Christ. That we are confident and we are sure that it's going to happen because it's a promise that it is throughout Scripture. And we know that our Savior is coming. We know that one day there's judgment for all of us. We know that all this stuff that He promised us is going to be true. And so our job in the meantime, between now and when it happens, is to patiently know that it's going to happen, but also proclaim that it's going to happen. Because the moment that we stop proclaiming that it's going to happen is the moment that we lose sight of the promise. And when we lose sight of the promise, what's that say for the next generation for us? In 1967, Ronald Reagan delivered one of the most memorable lines of his entire career. He said, freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. Do you hear that? Freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who's over the Church of England, he picked up on that saying. And nine years ago, almost to this month, nine years ago, he stood up in front of all the leaders of the Church of England. He said, I want to tell you, the Church of England is one generation away from extinction. One generation away. That all it's going to take is for one generation to forget or to reject the principles and the ideas that we hold dear to. And if we don't proclaim the promises of God and to this next generation, then we are one generation from extinction. I want you to hear me this morning. 
As much as we love this church, and some of you have built this church, and, and you have invested in this church, as much as we love our families, our faith and our church, any church, is one generation away from extinction. And it's, from, it's because if we don't proclaim the promises of God to our children and to the next generation, then we're one generation from them forgetting. We're one generation from them rejecting. We're one generation from the principles and the ideas that we hold dear to never be spoken of again. I want you to think for just a moment. I, I had a chance to go work with some guys to clear out a barn yesterday for a lady and. We were clearing out all of these old antiques things and, and these, these things that uh, haven't been used in years, in decades. And, and so my son went with me and, and he was holding up these things. He's like, Dad, what is this? And there were honestly some things that I had no clue what they were. There were some things that I was like, oh, I think it's this and I think it's used for that. But I want you to realize that whatever it was he was holding up was a valuable tool for somebody just two generations ago, maybe three generations ago. But I want you to know that that knowledge stopped getting passed down from one generation to the next. And so here I am, not having that knowledge and can't pass it on to the next generation. We are one generation away from our church and our faith being extinct because we've got to be obedient. We've got to trust and have faith. But in our faith, we must proclaim the promises of God. And we've got to be patient in our waiting for it. And if we don't proclaim it, then we don't pass on the promises then it's never going to reach the next generation and they're never going to have it to pass on to their kids. And we're one generation from being extinct. Let's pray together.